The True Ambition Podcast with John Zink is brought to you by IT Avalon. IT Avalon, IT staffing and professional services done right. Visit our sponsor at itavalon.com. Now, welcome to True Ambition. Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of the True Ambition Podcast. This is John Zink, your host. And uh, today I am honored to be joined by Mr. John Gray. He is the CTO and CPO, and that is Chief Product Officer of uh, Intervision Systems. Um, how are you today, John? I'm good. Yeah, it's great to be here. And uh, where, where are you beaming in from today? I'm in uh, Granite Bay, which is just outside of Sacramento, Northern California. So, And how hot is it there today? Oh, it, it's not even hot. It's probably just 98 degrees right now. We don't, oh. we don't count it as hot until it gets above 100, which by, you know, 4 o'clock this afternoon, it'll probably be 105. <laughs> it, it's dry heat. So if you grab a cocktail and sit by the pool, it's just fine. So it sounds to me like you were born and raised in the Sacramento area. Yeah, yeah. I was born and raised just a little east of here. <laughs> in, uh, rainy, oh, where, where, where are you from? Rainy southern England. I, was, uh, I grew up out in the country in the county of Hampshire, which is 60 miles outside of London, but it's very much sort of rural where I grew up. Rolling green hills, you know, very. What uh, what what is it known for? Is it uh, farming around there? What what's uh, what's that area? Winchester, right? Yeah, Winchester is the yeah that sort of area. Um, yeah, a lot of dairy cattle, sheep, arable. You know, sort of mixed farming. Um, you know, it looks beautiful when you when you're there. Um, it just you know you grow up there, you think it's incredibly boring. So, you, you know, I headed off to university in one city and then went to work just outside London um, and was there until my early third, 30, early 20s. I think I was 23 when I did, you know, I was a software engineer. And obviously California was where a lot of the action was at and still is. So, and much better weather. I always disliked the gloomy sort of long, long winters. Not so much the rain, the gloom just got me down. I like sun. Um, well, it's, uh, I was born and raised in Northwest Illinois and it's all farm country. You know, it's right yeah. in the corner of where Wisconsin, Illinois and Iowa meet and, uh, not gloomy there, but, uh, small town, 1500 people. And, uh, just, uh, it's cows, pigs, corn, hay, that's about it. Yeah. You know, beautiful area though. Like you said before, growing up boring, right? Yeah. But looking back yeah. on it now, what a gorgeous place to grow up. Oh, completely. Yeah. We didn't have any corn. We had the other things you talked about. We had wheat, barley, you know, all of that sort of stuff. But yeah, very much the same. You know. Now you and I met at the celebrity golf tournament up in uh, South Lake Tahoe back in July. And, uh, it was uh, it was nice sitting down and getting to talk with you. Uh, I think you actually we were introduced by one of uh, my employees, Amy. Correct? 
Yes. Yeah. Amy uh, is good friends with a neighbor and friend of mine. So, yeah, that's how we connected up. So now, did you meet any cool celebrities at the celebrity golf tournament? Yeah. I mean, meet, you know, we followed some around. The reason, um, well, part of the reason I was there and certainly how I got my wife to attend who thinks golf is the dullest game in the world, right? And I've always played it, you know, I'm a pretty decent golfer. And, and then, you know, the, so the idea of watching golf to her was like, you know, why would you possibly do that? But then when I told her that the the guy who is in, you know, the new Top Gun, who was Goose's son, who I can't remember his name, was going to be there, yeah, she totally changed her opinion. <laughs> What, whatever it takes. Exactly. All of a sudden, she was completely in. Um, the, the guy that, you know, we were on various tees and whatever. The one guy I did manage to strike up a conversation with was uh, Emmett Smith. And oh, he, cool. He was in a group with, I think it was him, maybe it was Jerry Rice and uh, one other you know NFL player from the same era. But there was some lady there with her grandkid who was starting to just give Emmett a hard time. Like, I had to come out here today just because he wants to see you. And she was laying into him. And I just started laughing. I said, geez, you, you just get the blame for everything, don't you? <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't believe it, you know. And we started chatting about this and that. And it, was, it was, you know, it was pretty cool because those guys were, as you notice, pretty relaxed and approachable generally. So, but yeah, that, that cracked me up. So. That's funny. So do you, your wife's name is Karen. Yes. You guys have four dogs. Yeah, we do. Yeah. Karen is in dog rescue, right? So uh, over the years, we've, we've, you know, she brings one home for the weekend. And, you know, next thing you know, we've got one more dog, you know. So, so soon it'll be five dogs. No, no. <laughs> Actually, it will be three because my son, one of my, one of them is my son's and he has just moved out of um, Sacramento and he and his girlfriend have gotten remote jobs and they've moved up to Tahoe, South Lake Tahoe. So now he's going to have some room and, and one of our dogs is going to, his dog is going to go up to Tahoe. So oh, that's cool. Yeah. So he's actually moving to Tahoe? Moved him up there about three weekends ago. Yeah, he got out of trendy midtown um, Sacramento and moved up into the into the mountains. He, you know, wants to be sort of out of the city. He's 26 years old, you know, so I think as you progress in your life, you sort of get out of the student sort of party mode and, you know, he's got a job, he's working hard and they love to be out, you know, hiking and doing all those kinds of things. I think I saw um, when you and I talked earlier about him being a baller, right? He's a basketball player. He played all through, you know, from, um, you know, when he was a little guy, um, all through high school. Yeah, he was a point guard uh, up into to high school. He got, he got quite injured in his last year, and he wasn't able to play for his varsity year, which kind of sucked. But uh. It was great for him being point guard on a bad team, actually. Um, you know, it was pretty hard on him, but I think it sort of helped him grow up quite a bit, you know, because you yeah, all of a sudden, all of a sudden you get that thrown in your face that, uh, oh, I am mortal. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you sort of get blamed for everything as a point guard, right? When things don't go. <laughs> yeah, you're the boss. Yeah, and you're trying to get on your buddies who are on the team and, you know, having to sort of figure out those relationships with your pals that, you know, maybe they're not pulling their weight on that game and how to deal with that. And then, you know, he'd come off the court and they'd lost and you couldn't talk to him for, you know, three or four hours because there's this big black cloud over his head, you know, because he's very competitive. And my wife would be, oh, Ryan, it's okay. And he'd sort of, you know, not give her a very friendly response. I'm just like, don't go anywhere near him. For Is he in sales now? He is, yeah. I, these, these guys that are uh, guys and girls that are big-time athletes fit really well into sales. Yeah, he's as competitive as can be, and he's doing really well. He just – he did economics in college, and he went into, you know, finances and wealth management because he really wanted to do that. But yeah, then he had friends, you know, two years in who were making way more money than him, uh, and they're in sales, tech sales for startups. and right. Uh, and everybody always told him, hey, you're going to end up in sales. He's got that sort of personality, you know, and he's driven. And, yeah, he, he was over here the other night. And, you know, he's working till 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night, you know, doing stuff to get ready for the next day, doing 50 right. calls, all of that, and he's loving it. What kind of student were you? Well, first of all, were you an athlete? No, I was a very poor, you know, in England growing up, the only game, well, there's two games, right? Soccer, football, right? Yeah. Uh, um, an okay football player, but not good. And then rugby, and I was a skinny, not very fast, you know, so I wasn't any good at that. I turned out to be a very good golfer, right? But that's not really athletic. Certainly wasn't back then. It is more. <laughs> it is more now. Yeah, but I, I went and did that. But that wasn't, you know, you don't get a lot of street credibility in high school if you're a golfer. <laughs> yeah. you know, not, you know, not like watching him being point guard of the basketball team and his buddies all on the football team. There's a so lot. What, what kind of what kind of student were you? I was. Um, I got better, right? I, you know, I thought I was going to be a pro golfer when I was 13 years old, right? So. I don't need any of this education stuff. <laughs> uh, but I kind of scraped through school. Yeah, high school in England, you graduate when you're 16. And so you've got a kind of a decision point there if you want to go on. And so you, you go, graduate when you're 16 years older? You, you do, and you go on to two years of what do they call it, six-form college, which is kind of a bit like community college. You know, it's a two-year in between a high school and, and university. Um, that you need to get a bit more serious if you're going to get into university. And at that point, I, I kind of got my act together and got to be a lot more serious because I realized, wow, I really don't want to go to work yet. If I can avoid working for, you know, five years, maybe this, you know, education thing isn't so <laughs> Right. So, that's, a, that's a really good idea. It's like 16 years old. Some people are way, I remember back in my high school days, there's some people that are far, um, farther along down the road than I was. You know, oh, yeah. I was a horrible student, horrible, just the worst. I, it, I talk about it in my book. It's just like I was the master manipulator and the master of waiting until the last minute to do anything. I would never study. You know, mm -hmm. I barely made it by 
other people hardly had to study, hardly had to do anything the way it looked, but probably what they were doing actually was studying and uh, learning all the things they were supposed to do. That getting out at 16 and then going to like a community college in between sounds like a really good idea to kind of figure out where some people need to go and where it's a really interesting thing. The the dynamic for me was, um, well, I mean, I got through to 16 and got, did okay because I was good at math and some science and stuff and sort of just managed to just sort of get good enough grades to get into a college. And then I, you know, it, in England, you still had to wear like school uniform and stuff like that. And I hated being told what to do, things like that. And just being treated the old English grammar school way where they, you know, it just, it didn't ride well with me. Um, and then you, you get into college and they suddenly treated me like an adult. Uh, and yeah, if you don't turn up for class, it's on you, you know, you're going to like, whoa, you know, um, that works. That different shift in mindset for me worked, right? So suddenly I was working really hard, right? Uh, and it was just because it was sort of turned around on me to a degree. Um, and I didn't want to, you know, I realized, wow, I really don't want to go get a job. I'm not, you know, that looks like a bit of a dead end kind of thing out here in the country where I grew up. Um, if I could get the education, go off to university somewhere else in the country where it's kind of cool, I get into a city, you know, have some fun and also get an education. That's kind of what clicked. Well, it's an interesting segue into, I've got some little cards here that a friend of mine gave me that are for the podcast. And it's just some, some interesting questions to uh, get a little bit of an inner look into the guest. So, John, would you rather visit a big city or the countryside? Yeah, that's a tricky one for me. Um, probably the countryside. I like both, right? I like both. I've lived in both. I like to go back and forth. I get, if I'm stuck in one, I want the other. <laughs> right. You always I, want what you don't have. I used to go to university in a city in England and then really have fun. But, you know, for, it was term systems So 10 weeks in, I was ready to get out. Yeah. Uh, weekend, you know, I loved being in and around London, but I got out of the weekends, went out into the country and did stuff. And so, I, you know, that that's, that's a tricky thing. Ultimately, though, you know, I grew up in the country. If I had to choose, that's what I would choose. It's funny. Me too. It's like, you know, recently my wife and I, within the last year, we have a four-year-old at home. So I'm now 50 years old. So we moved to Reno, Nevada to get out of the Bay Area. And I'm taking my son over Labor Day back to Northwest Illinois, where I grew up 1,500 people. You know, that's the size Mm -hmm. of the town. And it's just like, I, I long to get back into that you know, to go back there, but I'm there for four or five days and I can't wait to get out. Right. <laughs> you know, it's, it's such a yin and yang thing. It's like, uh, I, I can't wait to go back, but I also can't wait to get back home afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I, I mean, I can have fun wherever I'm at. I think. Um, yeah, me too. I like traveling. I like people, you know, but then I, I also like sort of getting away from them. So, so, uh, Back to school, what what were your favorite subjects? Like you talked about a couple of them. Yeah, I mean, where I got to was sort of the way 
English language and stuff like that was taught in England. I really didn't like it, I think. And that pushed me away from any subject where you had to write. Um, was it just the way that it was taught? It or was, what? Yeah, it was, it was kind of that. Um, because later in my career, I've become the person sort of, or into my career, I end up being a person that writes a lot. Uh, and I like it. So I realized it was really the way I was being taught at that point. So what that caused me to do was... It was this, you know, I was sort of gadget guru. I was into gadgets and stuff from an early age. So I, I went after computer science, right? I picked up a book on the, on the, you know, Zilog Z80 microprocessor when I was like 16 years old and read it because I wanted to program. I wanted to write a Space Invaders game, right? Oh, nice. Right, game software. So I just became sort of nerdy in that way, but went, you know, whole hog in on, Initially, I just couldn't, for a, a month or so, I just couldn't figure it, figure out what was going on in this um, computer science class I was taking, you know, at 16 years old. And then all of a sudden it clicked and I was like hooked, right? So I just went in the deep end. I wanted to figure out down to the internals, you know, of the chip and, you know, all of that, how, how these things worked. So I went, you know, sort of deeply into that, um, and that caused me, again, you know, try to avoid things where I had to write a lot because what I liked about math was when I did study it, your answers were either right or wrong, right? 100%. I could get good. Yeah, it's black and white, right? I could generally get through, you know, exams, certainly the old-style UK exams back then because I knew I was getting the right answers, Right. right. Whereas English or whatever, if you weren't taking, you know, I don't know, geography or history, it was sort of subjective on the how they viewed your answer. Um, and, you know, I really did not like that vagary. And I wasn't a good writer at that point. So I struggled to get my, my points across, right, I think. And, and you just had to read more as a slow reader as a kid and still am. Uh, but my comprehension's good. And it's I, interesting you say that because, like, I think I'm a little bit dyslexic. I've mm -hmm. always had a, tr I've always had trouble when reading, um, downloading it into my brain. But mm -hmm. I can sit and listen to an audiobook and take it all in. Yeah, you know, it's like I'm, I'm an audiobook hound. I just freaking love it. Yeah, I'm good if I scan and then if I read again. If I scan something and then I come back to it later. Yeah, that's how I really comprehend stuff. So, it, you know, it's, it's, it was harder for me, but, I mean, that sort of led me into a deeply techie degree, you know, and sort of early in my career, very technical roles um, that I liked, but I also liked the people dynamic side of things. So, Well, it's a good, it's a good mix of the two, and that's probably why you're in the position you are because – most of the people I've talked to, and pretty much everybody I talk to, is a CTO, CIO, CEO um, level mm -hmm. person. And uh, in order to make it into the level you are, you have to be interested in the people side of it, you know, yeah. because it's like uh, the tech side of it, you know, heads down coding, you know, doing it doesn't really work to go out and lead people. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so it's the mixture that, I, I mean, I, I for me, I don't think necessarily that, you know, it, it's a bit of jack or all, all trades master of none, but I think 
across a number of things, you know, I'm confident that when you add them together, that gives me, you know, value, right? So let's let's go way back. What what did your parents do for work? Uh, my dad ran an electrical contracting business out in the country. You know, he was uh, in the Second World War. He was he volunteered in '39. He was much old. He was almost 50 when I was born. So, you know, he volunteered in 1939 to go be a pilot in the RAF. Um, wow. They found out he had some sort of early electronic sort of skills. And he was a natural leader. And they pulled him into the factory where they repaired Spitfires right next to where they built them. And he ran wow. guys there for the war. And then he went into, he was out in the country, grew an electrical contracting business. Um, and my mom was significantly younger than him. She came out, you know, and it was, she was like a, a hairdresser that he found and, you know, connected with. And came he out. found, he found the beauty. Exactly. About 15 years younger than him. Uh, <laughs> and called her in and she was, you know, back up and she ran the office for him sort of thing. So it was a family. So it was uh, from your dad. Is that where the engineering mindset comes from? Uh, not necessarily. I don't know. You know, he passed away when I was 14, so I didn't. Oh, okay. You know, um, probably, you know, that's where some of it came from and certainly probably the entrepreneur, you know, side of things. But the seventies in the UK were tough. You know, everything was going bankrupt. The unions were taking over. It was, the last thing I wanted to do was run a business based upon seeing all of that. Right. It was like, why the heck would you do that? It's complete stress. on me. So I was like, ah, I don't want to do that. Well, uh, there had to be a huge amount of stress on you losing your dad at 14 years old. Were you guys really close? No, he was sort of old school, uh, Victorian type of upbringing. So we were kind of distant. I mean, it, you know, it's a sad story. He committed suicide, right? Oh my gosh. Pressure of a business going badly. You know, he was heading into his sixties, no real, you know, uh, scheme to retire, you know, the world closing in on him. Um, yeah. Um, and the, you know, the economy was terrible in the seventies in construction business died, you know, so the walls closed in on him. Right. Um, do you have siblings? No, I'm an only child. Me too. So, oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. So I kind of helped my mom, you know, she ran the business for about a year and I helped her. I mean, I, it was, when I look back at it, you know, I was talking to somebody about this recently. I helped sell off stuff because I figured, you know, I knew some of the people he knew and I helped, had them help me. And we sold a, um, an antique petrol pump, gas pump to Sotheby's auction was one of the, I was 14 years old. You know, we were just trying to generate money because trying to survive, right? Well, yeah, he died and he, um, he had no will. So everything went into probate, right? And it was screwed up because it, we had a big overdraft, but it went into probate. And you remember the 70s, 13.5% interest or whatever? Right, right, right. So with a big, you know, debt piling up, but you couldn't get to it to pay it off or some craziness like that. So it was like my mom was trying to sort of run this business and sell it off. And we were trying to find ways to, to make money at the same time, sort of watching this bank account that was freaking her out, just 
go further and further into debt. It was just this lousy situation with the law in England and the economy and that personal situation that was, you know, I grew up really fast. Um, I bet, I bet. And all I want to do is go play golf, right? You know. Well, it probably helps you to escape all this crap you're going through too. It, it did. It did. Yeah, that was completely the, you know, the sanctuary for me was to be able to run, run away and do this game, play this game that was really, really difficult. And that was, I had a lot of people that were sort of supportive of me around that, looking back on it. And they kind of knew, I think, you know, this, some of them certainly knew my personal situation. So, Is your mom still alive? No, she passed away in 2015. Yeah, um, but, you know, she lived to early 80s. Yeah, she had a lot of tough times with depression and drinking and stuff like that. So, you know, the sort of family side of things for me wasn't, you know, I wasn't mistreated or anything at all, but it wasn't, wasn't easy, you know. Yeah, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of things that went on in my early life that, uh, you know, like my, my biological father walked away when I was a year old. Oh, but wow. I didn't find out about it until I was 20 years old. So my, my mom remarried this guy, Rich Zink, great guy. Uh -huh. It just happened to be that he was in that whole family. All the guys were about 6'2", six, 6'3", six, about my same size. And he just didn't think any different. Size 13 feet, just like me. So you didn't and know? I, I had no clue until I was 20 years old that the guy who raised me, Rich Zink, wasn't my father. Oh, the guy who was my biological father um, was about 15 miles away in another small town. And it's like, you, you feel like the Truman show because it's just like, everybody knows except for you. Whoa. So it's like, we, we all have this fucked up shit that goes on in yeah. our youth that we have no control over, but what you do have control over is what happens later. And that's always a fun thing when I'm talking to people on this podcast is to dig into what makes people tick mm -hmm. and a lot of the times you find out there's something that happened in their youth that kind of pushed them in the direction that uh, led them to where they're at today yeah i mean for me it was i i sort of kept on running from stuff yeah. not necessarily from stuff but just trying to keep pushing forward right um yeah and it was never settled not for a long time because of that, I think a lot of what happened early in my life. Yeah. Well, it's one of the, it's one of the reasons I think I talked to you about um, in Tahoe. It's like I, I've I've got about eight years sober. I drank and drank and drank and drank and tried to drink that away for a long time. And uh, it was right after my forty second birthday, just a couple of days afterwards, where I actually got sober and started tackling all this stuff that happened to me in my early life and started figuring it out instead of trying to drink it away. Congratulations. You know. oh, thanks, bro. Yeah. I mean, because, yeah, I've seen that, you know, both my father and my mother, and it's tough, you know. It's tough, and I'm one of the lucky ones because not a lot of people, you know, make it out the other side. Mm -hmm. You know, I just, I just a month and a half, two months ago, had a cousin that passed away um, because of it, and it's just like it was so sad to watch her go down that road because she was such a wonderful person, mm -hmm. and, you know, we grew up together as cousins and like as an only child, as you know, those yeah. cousins and those friends become your siblings. Well, the friends. Yeah. Ultimately oh, early in my life. Yeah. Were key. Some of the people that 
I think, you know, looking back on it, I realized it. I didn't at the time, but yeah, they, they kept me sort of on the straight and narrow, you know? So how did you end up first coming to the U S? Uh, I was, um, looking in a, in the UK, there were two or three national magazines that if you're in the computer business, you looked in, right? And they had job ads because the UK is a lot smaller, right? So it's the size of a state, right? And there was an ad for, you know, jobs in California and Hawaii and the sunset thing (laughs) or a certain uh, technology skill set that I had about three months of, right? That was relational database and very new. Um, and so I, I think I called up either because there was an email back then. This is 1988, right? Right. I think I made a call. It was up in London. Um, it was this staffing agency run by a bunch of ex-used car sales guys, literally. And they had a, they had an office in Walnut Creek out here in Northern California. And their game was bringing people out of Europe uh, and getting them onto contracts in California and making, you know, very large amounts of money on them because the pay was way better out here than it was in Europe. So they bring you on out on a salary that was way higher than what I was getting back there. So I was happy and they were making, you know, really good money. And then, you know, I got out here and after nine months, I sort of renegotiated, hey, you know, I figured it out. You it's know, time for on. me to get paid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, where I was working, they really liked me. I said, yeah, I'll stay. But, you know, I want about half of what you're taking off of me. And, we got, you know, I got that. And then I went off and one of the VPs from that company went to a startup, essentially. And I did, you know, the first startup in about 1992, 91, 92, I think, around, you know, sort of software and healthcare and, that that blew up, and then when we got a job with a with an integrator that was starting an office in Sacramento, and worked there for a while. So, yeah, it's sort of you know one thing to the next. But that's what brought me to California. You know, and I came to the Sacramento area and was sort of looking to go to the Bay Area, right? But Sacramento kind of suited me because it's a mixture of things. Right, you got access to the city, you got access to the mountains, right? So it actually fit me in right. some pretty well. So Yeah, you get to Tahoe in about what hour and a half? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um so I've been here most of that time. Did spent a year or so in San Diego, another startup, a dot com startup down there that you know became a dot bomb. So I came back up to the Sacramento area because I knew way more people back up here in about 2001 and two. And then ultimately in the mid two thousands, that led to me and a friend starting a consulting business, um, which is sort of led to, to more, you know, that worked. So, and that was called infinity, right? Yeah. Yeah. we grew that up to about 60 people, uh, in, 2018, we merged in with Intervision. You know, well, were you doing staffing or services or a mixture of both, or what were you doing? Of both. Yeah, we, we were doing you know, IT 
software integration, app dev, project management for large state departments um, in count, you know, in Sacramento, getting on bigger contracts with um, some of the bigger companies, but kind of betting on and winning work. I got to be pretty good with kind of, you know, technical writing ability. I did a lot of writing. I did a lot of proposal writing. So I got to be good at responding to things. So we were able to win our own work. We got on various contracting vehicles with California. Uh, and we, then we jumped on the Amazon bandwagon in the, uh, 2015 because we got into virtualizing um, for some of our clients that we picked up in the private sector. That led to cloud and then that sort of just took off for us um, and exploded. And then we, you know, we saw the, the multiples people were getting in cloud and decided to go out and go the M&A route. Um, and that happened in 2018. We merged in with Intervision, kind of became their cloud division and then fully merged in. So, and now that's the company that you're with yeah. now. Yeah, I'm, you know, the CTO. I've been CTO since pretty much when we when I joined and then took on the chief product officer role a couple of years ago. Um, and we were a private equity backed company that I think we've got seven or eight companies merged together uh, at this point, you know, and continue to grow organically and you know, inorganically, and we'll probably, you know, bring in a couple more companies. Um, and we are a um, managed service provider, strategic service provider, um, kind of moving up the curve to do a more sort of application development, app modernization, a lot of managed services, you know, IT infrastructure work, um, ransomware protection as a service is something that's taking off like crazy for us. Because uh, we've integrated our disaster recovery as a serviceability with um, SOC and other things we do. And, you know, we're Gartner recognized in the DR side of it. And so we, you know, we've sought out areas where we've got, you know, unique value um, in, in the world, you know. So, you know, it, it's an interesting role um, because we take products you know, from other OEM vendors and then our, add our own sort of unique, you know, value to that in the kind of managed services and professional services and bundle that up, you right. know, looking at the at target markets and trying to figure out where they're going. Like ransomware protection, we started working on last year. And then sure enough, you know, we've got the likes of, you know, uh, President Putin helps market for us, right? Because <laughs> right. You know, one of our clients got attacked the day the, the war broke out because they were a company doing business in in Ukraine. And we had them back up and running in a couple of hours because of the disaster recovery side of things that we had. Um, you know, they were up and going. But yeah, had they not had what we had, they would have been wiped out for, for weeks, if not months, you know. So... Yeah, it's it's a great business. Um, I really enjoy it. It's you know the, we're a constant, ongoing transformation ourselves, right? Because we're bringing these cultures together. Uh, how do you break down the silos of the companies and sort of focus them on areas of technology? Uh, and then you know where's the market going? Where are our clients? You know how do you 
sort of figure out where things are going. You know, COVID has changed all of our work, right? Remote work. Let's go, go back to, you know, my business. I mean, I own an IT staffing company called IT yeah. Avalon. Yeah. And, you know, going, we're about 10 years old and I started it, you know, pretty much out of a room in a house, out of my underwear. Right. You know, and it's like now we've got 200 consultants, an internal team of about 30, you know, and it's like to go from that to this is just like mind blowing. Yeah. I mean, um, it's what, it, what caused the, you know, with the, was there somewhere along there that re- really caused you guys to launch, jump, you know, up a plateau, you know, really? Yeah. It's, it, it was me, me figuring out that I couldn't do it all myself. Mm-hmm. So being, uh, I was a great recruiter, technical recruiter, and um, good at building relationships on the sales side. Uh, my wife came in as the CEO. She's one of the best salespeople I've ever seen in my life. Okay. But it was still her and I trying to do everything. We had a few recruiters and stuff. Then we just figured out that we weren't good managers. To manage a sales force, we've got a guy in here who just kicks ass. He's so good at it. Mm-hmm. Analytical, just understands how to manage people without micromanaging them. Uh, and then same thing, VP of recruiting. He's got his whole team of recruiters. Manages them, manages them so much better than I would. I'm a great individual contributor. I'm a good manager of the business as far as on top running all of the operations, but literally sitting down and managing a sales team. Mm-hmm. You know, my my manager now uh, who runs the sales organization asked me when he first came in. You know how do you manage your sales team? I'm like, well, I pay them well. I expect them to do what they're supposed to do. <laughs> He's like, no, that's not how it works. You know, I, I just didn't know. You don't know what you don't know. There's something to that though, because I mean, there's something I think about a lot is there's a difference between management and leadership, right? And if you're a good leader and you bring in the right people, you know, that goes a long way, right? See, so you don't have to micromanage necessarily. Right. Well, I think that was part of it was hiring the right leadership for right. the rest of the teams. Right. And go back to your question of what made it skyrocket. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we were stuck at between 10 and $15 million in revenue for a long time. Mm-hmm. I just couldn't get off of that, you know, yeah. hockey stick that had just straightened out. When I brought those people in and started to expand the company as far as hiring leaders, yeah. Boom. It just took off. Yeah. Oh, so that, that was really a big thing. It, it, it all comes not, it all comes down for me to not knowing what I didn't know. Mm-hmm. And now looking back in hindsight from yeah. the day that everything expanded that way with new leadership, then it all just kind of exploded. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause that's kind of the level we got to, which is kind of the level you can stay at with a couple of you running it. And we, yeah. we got kind of stuck there and we got somebody in who helped us kind of break through that and then we got and then we went MA shortly after that but we were stuck at that level for a couple of years because i think you know my business partner and i uh, in some ways were street smart right required to start a company in you know multifaceted um a lot of different sort of skill sets able to generate a lot of passion, bring some good people in, blah, blah, blah. You know, you, you get going. But then how do you get up beyond that? 
And we, you know, we're sort of looking at ourselves and we joined organizations like Vistage that, you know, coach on, you know, executive staff. And what that caused was some introspection on, yeah, we're not going to get this thing up above where we're at on just us, right? Yeah. We're going to be where we're at, right? The two of us. And the funny part is that there's nothing wrong with being at that level. No. It's just wanting to move to the next level. There's something within me that just wants to, almost like what you were talking about before, I just want to keep going. Mm -hmm. I want to do interesting things. And in order to do that, you have to bring other really smart people around you to move you to the next level. And that's kind of what we did. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Because now the challenge for me, my own sort of personal you know, now our company is 500 plus, right? It's how do I become a really effective executive of that size of company, having always been very involved, right? I can't be, right? I cannot lean on my ability to know everything about a business and be able to come in to sales and delivery and do all these things, which I could still do when we were a $15 million company. I can't be them anymore. I got to become better at, you know, being an executive, right? And, you know, recognizing the challenge of that and I'm getting there. And, you know, it takes probably six months of being uncomfortable about kind of delegating. I'm sure you've had this, right? Where you go, no, I got to stay out of that. You know, I can't go do that. Yeah. And it's really uncomfortable for a while. Certainly for me. It's uh, it's almost getting over the pride thing of maybe it's better for me to let somebody else go do this. And, oh, by the way, John, you don't need to be involved. Mm-hmm. You know, because that, that, that little guy's over here on the shoulder going, hey, hey, you need to go get involved. And this guy's like, no, it'll be okay. Yeah. I'll whack this guy off, this, off the shoulder. Completely. Completely. Yeah. Yeah, no, I completely agree. So, so what's next for you guys? I mean, you're what size are you now? Um, we're right around forty-five million dollars in revenue uh, right now. Um, uh, the goal is to get to two hundred fifty million. Um, so we're growing like crazy. We're hiring the right people and uh, just growing. You know, so, so. fivefold increase. What what's gonna what's gonna get you there? What are the two or three things you think will get you? It, it's all, it all comes down to hiring the right people. We have the engine in place right now. We've, all we have to do is duplicate what we've done over the last three years. Execute. Execute. It all comes, all comes down to execution uh, and treating people right. It's just like getting in. There's, there's no hidden agenda. There's no smoke and mirrors. It's just like we're a great staffing company. This is what we do the best. Our people are freaking awesome. Use us. If you like us, great. If you don't, that's fine. But are you going to expand geographically? Yeah, it's all it's all geographically. So right, we're right now. What we're doing is going from um, metropolitan to metropolitan around the U.S., and we're just hiring salespeople and recruiters in each one of those uh, geographies. And we're just going to take what we do and implement it there. And what we do is really just for our salespeople and our recruiters that we hire is give them the autonomy to kind of run their own business in those towns. Okay. 
So are you finding that you know, the, the great resignation and all of you know what's happened here in the last couple of years has really helped you know throw more fire on fuel on the fire for you guys? I mean, I yeah, it's it's been nuts. Um, we've doubled in size in the last two years. Yeah. So it's uh, it, go back to three four years ago when myself or one of the salespeople would be out meeting with the manager at one of our clients, like I've got to have somebody on site. They've got to be in the office. They've got to be here. You know, as soon as the pandemic hit, mm-hmm. all that went away. Yeah. You know, and it also freed up every one of these um, technologists to make up their own mind, whether they wanted to be in the office mm-hmm. full time hybrid or work remote and they get to call the shots on what they want to do. And I tell my clients, it's like, if you want the best technologist for this role or these roles or this project you're probably going to have to either go hybrid or remote because these people who are the best at what they do are choosing what they want to do and calling the shots and guess what your competitor will let them do what they want to do if they want to hire that person so it's up to you what you want to do and like they're talking about the recession that we're either in or going into right now and, uh, you know, I've had a lot of people internally here at my company that, you know, it gets them a little jumpy, uh, gets them a little bit nervous. And I said, well, don't forget that if you go back just eight or nine months, there was one technologist for every seven to eight positions that were available. So there's not enough people to even close to go around. So let, let's say that they do cut it by 20 or 25% hiring. That's one technologist for every four to five positions yeah. that are available. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal this morning about, you know, somebody got laid off as a re- recruiter or whatever, and she was worried. And, you know, within weeks, she had multiple offers, got a, has gotten a bigger, you know, salary than she had before. And it's just, you know, not, you know, way better than she had expected. So, I agree. So, what? I'd be interested. What percentage are you are of your people are working on site versus remote, and how has that shifted in the last couple of it's years? It's such a small percentage of people working on site right now. And is that I would shifted so a lot in the last two years? Oh yeah, it's a hundred percent. Probably twenty percent of people before mm-hmm. were working remote. It's probably 20% working on site now. Yeah. Yeah. 80% of the people are working remote. And I don't see it changing. I mean, they, they keep talking about, well, maybe next year we'll open it back up and people will come back in. But I think that the people are saying, no, we're going to keep working this way because we're more productive, mm-hmm. we're happier, and uh, most of the time we're working more hours than we would if we would have had a commute into the office in the first place yeah yeah no i commute in occasionally and i just get irritated now <laughs> right. it's like i could be working right now yeah and exactly i'm on emails by the time i get in there i'm gonna yeah, well, what's what's the difference if we're meeting face to face or if we're doing this looking at each other over a zoom yeah i mean I, I i agree but having said that when i have gone in it's been great Right when we pulled a few things together in person, and what I've always thought about because I've done tons of project work over the years, delivery, you know, with a new client. Once you form the relationship and get to know each other, you don't have to be there. 
Which exactly. Only but on the on the sales side, yeah. For meeting a client, I'm all about meeting everybody face to face. You know, going and building that rapport and building that trust from the client to IT Avalon. Yeah. After that, there's no reason to get together except for every once in a while to break bread to yeah. for me as a vendor to say, hey, thanks for the business. Yeah. And if we can't get together, hey, I'll shoot you a bottle of wine or you know, I'll shoot you something to say thank you. But there's nothing like getting together every once in a while. And that's why we did the get together up there at uh, you know, South Lake Tahoe for the golf event. We brought in every one of our employees for that just, you know, as a thank you. And then we'll do another one in the wintertime. Yeah, I thought that was great. I mean, I'm sort of thinking the same thing with my team. It's like we've been working remotely for two plus years and some of us have never met. We're all over the country. Right. We met in person. There were four people that worked for me that I had never met before mm -hmm. coming to Tahoe. Yeah. And, you know, if we, when I do get the team together, it's going to be pretty much just to get together. Yeah. Because we're very efficient remotely, right? Um, very effective. And, you know, our executive team in our company, because we've had more acquisitions, we've only all met like once. And it, to, to really get a, a you know, executive team in a company that gels takes some time. And sure. it, it would have been easier, I think, if we'd have been in the same office because, you know, you got to go through some storming, forming, norming, right, to really get to where you sort of, there's trust, right, you know, to challenge people in a way that you're comfortable. Um, but we've gotten that, you know, primarily remotely. I think it's just taken us longer than it would have if we'd have been, um, you know, in the same office. But having, you know, when you look to the future, I think we will become more effective as people at just being remote. And being I think I had had uh, uh, Wendy Pfeiffer on here. She's the uh, CIO, CTO for uh, Nutanix. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was about a year ago she was on. And she said at the time uh, they had... Um, done research on their developers mm -hmm. and found out that they were somewhere around 20% more productive working remotely than when they were in the well, office. No doubt. Yeah. 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 I mean, we, we've got a large network operation center and, you know, they are now going remote, you know, so, and, you know, so we had a lot of people in a knock in, you know, St. Louis 24 seven, you know, really, high quality managed services that we do as a company. I was thinking, oh, those guys are not going to want to, you know, there's a lot of camaraderie, but no, even they primarily are, are going remote, you know, which is, which is interesting. Um, so yeah, uh, with, you know, I think a certain amount of coming into the office for certain things to still keep that, yeah, because that's a tough job. You're getting pulled in when stuff breaks. And, oh, yeah. You know, it's it's good to have somebody to turn around to and sort of just vent to sometimes, you know. But they do that online in room, you know, sort of finding ways to, to be Yeah, able chat to rooms, this sucks. Yeah, just <laughs> come on, you know, you don't get, people don't call you because stuff's working. And to, hey, right, right, right. Even all work and they call because something's broken. <laughs> yeah, you'll get a call going, man, this is great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
So, you know, we're finding ways to use things like Slack. And, you know, we were early adopter of Slack in my company. Uh, and that's been great. I can get on there and just ping people on my team. Hey, how's it going? What about this? Yeah. Go across the whole team in five minutes. You know, it's very effective. Well, let me ask you about uh, reading material. Uh, you're a fan of Tolkien. And yeah. uh, I, so am I. Um, the Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, um, and I'm also a musician. So, you know, it was funny after I got into uh, Tolkien and listening to Led Zeppelin and hearing all of the you know, Tolkienisms in there. It was yeah. great. Tell me about uh, why you love uh, The Hobbit. Um, takes you into another place. I mean, it's amazing writing, right? And it's travel, adventure. I read a lot of books as a kid on, you know, adventure in Africa or, you know, people, you know, Wilbur Smith wrote novels or, like, you know, that sort of stuff. Not great writing, but it would take you away into a totally different place. And I think The Hobbit is, you know, brilliant. I read it when I was quite young, right? And it stuck with me. And then Lord of the Rings. It's not like I'm some crazy Tolkien um, follower. I'm not. I just think that what he um, wrote was, and it was, you know, some of it was lifted from other writers and what, but it was brilliant. Well, I uh, think that uh, after going through this podcast with you, um, you and I almost grew up in a shire yeah, of types. Exactly. And I want to go out and see the world. You're absolutely right. I mean, the, the, yeah, you know, at my mother's, you know, life celebration thing they did, you know, in a memorial, I read a, you know, a, a, a verse from The Hobbit. You know, it's, it's something to do with, you know, I'm more than about, you know, go west of west and, I mean, it, it is brilliant because she lived in the Canary Islands for 25 years. So she had this kind of travel bug as well. So for both of us, you know, that was sort of, you know, and British people, you get out and, you know, historically have traveled all over the place because it's such a tiny little island, you know. So there's a, it's in your DNA, I think, if you're from that island to, to get out and travel. But you're right. We grew up in a shire. I've never quite thought of it that way, John. Well, it's yeah. like growing up in Mount Carroll, Illinois. Yeah. Um, yeah I mean, it really is just this small little place. Oh, yeah. And it's also an amazing place to be raised because you are raised by a community. You know, yeah. my mom, I was a latchkey kid, so my mom and dad were both working all the time. And I'd be up in the morning, and I'd be on my bike going to the swimming pool hanging out with the friends, home by the time the lights went out, you know, and it was just like that was every day. I was gone in the woods, out down the rivers, you know, getting chased off of farmer's fields and <laughs> poaching trout. You know, in England, there's trout streams where people spend thousands of dollars to come fly fish there. You, we would obviously sneak out there, with <laughs> catch trout and get chased off, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, there were thatched cottages, you know, where I grew up. Uh, you, you, what you just said about Shires. I hadn't thought about that, but it's, yeah, very much. That. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun to go through those books and just get into it and, like, take 
um, be a Baggins and just like, I need to get the hell out of here. Yeah. You know, go out and just see the world, like you said before. And, uh, you know, for anybody who's grown up in a small town, and there's a lot more people that grew up in small towns than there are people that grew up in big towns. And, you know, it's, it's interesting to go through and see that and then go through a story like yours and see how similar those stories are, The Hobbit, and then what you and I went through. It's just going out and trying to find ourselves in the world. You're right, because it still appeals to me. You know, like I want to go down to South America. I want to go to Peru or something like, you know, someplace that I haven't been. Just, oh, my, my wife says all the time, she goes, Would, do you ever stay home? Yeah. And I, I, I don't. I just, I have to be going all the time. Well, and love- now my son, who's four years old, mm-hmm. never wants to be home. <laughs> you know? Yes. And it's like, he'll, we'll be out doing something and he'll literally say, no home. No home. Because he doesn't want to go home. He just wants to be out doing stuff all the time. And I love that about him. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, you, you sort of crystallized it there. I hadn't thought about it quite that way, but yeah. So other than that, um, I know you had some other things that you had talked about uh, as far as books that uh, maybe for other managers or other technologists out there, what other books kind of uh, have you been reading lately that uh, you might want to turn others on to? You know, I haven't read that much recently. It's something that, you know, I'm kind of ashamed to say that I used to read a lot. I read a ton, sort of early in my career, all the classics, like Good to Great. Um, I did a lot of, yeah, a lot of reading. All the class, yeah, um, who was the guy? Uh, Deming around quality, you know, continuing improvement. Um, I think... You know, there was there was a guy who came out of the business school. Oh, you know, everything I learned in the Harvest Business School. He was an American. Um, I can't think of his name. Sales. He was an agent, right? So I read a wide variety of sort of success books, like Will Robbins kind of stuff. Well, oh. I'm going to send you this one right now. True Ambition by John Zink. Okay. I'm send you this one. Send me that. Hey, you look like one of the Blues Brothers on the front of that. Hey, that's that's me on stage. That is, um, <laughs> my favorite movies was the Blues Brothers. So. Oh, it's so great. Send me that. Send me that book. Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll shoot you this. I'll sign yeah. it and I'll send it off. To, I'll have Amy send it to you. Um, but uh, we end the True Ambition podcast the same way uh, every podcast. And uh, True Ambition. Uh, it's, I took it from a quote that comes actually out of uh, a book called The 12 and 12 in uh, my 12-step program. And uh, I've always been ambitious, just like you, just like every other person I've ever talked to on this podcast. And this quote says that true ambition is not what we thought it was. It says that true ambition is the profound desire to live usefully and walk humbly under the grace of God. When I read that quote, it kind of changed my life because being ambitious prior to reading that quote was always for houses, women, cars, stuff. Mm-hmm. What I learned from that quote and kind of what I try to do on a daily basis is to do the right thing between myself and my fellow man. Mm-hmm. And what I find out from people at the end of this podcast is you've gone through a lot. You know, you've, you've, you've made it to where you are today. You're a little bit older, a little bit wiser now. 
what is your true ambition in life, both in your career and your personal life moving forward? Well, I mean, for me, I've always thought of success is a combination of being successful in business and being successful, you know, with your family outside of business, right? Which is the hardest to pull off because you can work 24 hours a day and be successful in your business, but you, you know, you're going to destroy your marriage. You're not going to have a relationship with your kid, you know, all of those things. So, so, you know, being able to be successful across the gamut of, you know, personally, you know, with your spouse, with your children, with, you know, with your community, um, whatever it means to you is for, I'm not a religious person, but I am sort of, I'm, I sort of have high morals, I would say, uh, and somewhat spiritual. So to be true to that, right, um, and continue that. And, you know, are you giving back? Are you helping people? Because, you know, you look at where our society is heading. It, it's worrying, right? You know, we've got so many homeless. We've got so many disenfranchised people. We've got so many crazy wealthy people, right? And I'm in a bubble. Um, how do you? How do you sort of... Do something going forward for me that helps with that, right? You know, I sort of coined this a couple of years ago with what do I want to do? I want to kind of be, you know, I came up with something that I knew would get a reaction from my wife, like, well, that's really stupid. I want to be, you know, the wise elder. You know, I want to be the guy sitting around the, the fire that, you know, in the village that people come to, right? Because I've got some wisdom because I've lived all these years, right? Uh, I've got value. And that's partly tongue in cheek, but, um, you know, I, I want to find or continue to find ways to make a difference, I guess, across a whole variety of things, but also have fun, right? Because I think, you know, we're a social species, right? And if you're positive, it just kind of emanates from you. People have fun, right? Big time. And it lifts people. You know, there's so many things you could look at that are negative. Well, it, not, it not only lifts people, it lifts you. Oh, totally. You know, totally. and it's like if you are in a bad mood, your day is ruined. Everybody around you is trying to get away from you, or if they can't get away from you, they're ruined. Mm -hmm. You know, it just turns into a shit show. It does. Yeah, I, I mean, I used to, and this, I used to go buy some groceries and take them to a food shelter. Yeah. I don't mean that's a yeah, big charity because I knew the light. Yeah. You know, I called around and I wanted to do something right. That would give me, it made me feel good. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was simple. It was immediate. Um, because I felt like I was just getting too buried in the materialistic chasing stuff. And I was looking for something just to make myself feel a bit more balanced. So, and it was a win-win, right. Made me feel good. Uh, it make, it makes you feel good. And if everybody would listen to this makes you feel good and you didn't miss a step. And then once you do that thing that helps somebody else that makes you feel good, the universe, God, whatever you want to call it, gives you back tenfold. Oh, what you gave away in the first place. And a bit of it was, I saw some people that were, you know, were reaching retirement and, and you know, that and they were really bitter sort of and they've never part of the reason i think was they've never given you know they, they weren't involved in things and you don't have to be this big time charity it's just like 
go give you, you know, find something that makes you feel good. Yeah. Give of your time. You don't have to give a penny. Right. Right. And, you, so, know? you know, I, my wife does a whole bunch of random rescue stuff. That's not me, but I'm sort of helping her do that financially. And, you know, so in that case, it is just kind of money. It makes me feel really good. That, yeah. So, um, being true to that is probably not, you know, not just moving out of the business into purely you know, ultimately retiring and just being about just seeking out, you know, the next greatest place to travel, whatever. I want to certainly want to do that, but I want to find a way to try to give back in a way that truly helps people in some, you know, teaching people to fish, right? not giving them you know, something I can do that will, that will help, uh, but will also make me feel good. Yeah. So. Awesome. Well, I love it. John, thank you so much for joining us today. Everybody who tuned in, we appreciate you tuning in. I uh, hope you all got something out of this and uh, we'll see you. And uh, you'll hear us on the next True Ambition podcast. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day. The True Ambition podcast is brought to you by IT Avalon. For more information and links to other episodes, please visit www.trueambition.org. Now, go find your true ambition. And I'll be your protector.